Um, most Sundays, my Sunday probably doesn't look a whole lot like your Sunday. Uh, but last Sunday and the Sunday before, my di- Sunday did look a whole lot like your Sunday. I sat in worship with my family, and it was a privilege to do. But I also remembered how many things vie for our attention and how many distractions come upon us and how easy it is to sit through a worship service without having worshiped at all. Jesus says these people draw near, me to, near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Let's go to God now and ask him to give us that united heart that it would be fixed upon Jesus and that it would truly be the craving of our heart. It would be the longing of our heart to know him and that all these other distracting things would be silenced and we would count them as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Be thou our vision, O Lord, of our heart. Naught be all else to us save that thou art. O Lord, nothing in this world is worthy of the attention that belongs to you. And so whether it be a grumbling stomach or what somebody around us is doing or something about this room itself or something that's on our schedule later this day or week, let not Satan grab our attention because it belongs to Jesus. So we pray that you truly would be our vision now and always. In Christ's name, amen. Take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. This is our our sixth sermon from the book of Hebrews. Uh, We're working verse by verse through it. If you're using the Bible in your row, our passage is on page 1002. Um, If you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that one home. We'd be Very, very honored for you to take that and use it throughout the week. And and I'll remind you, uh, in this verse-by-verse exposition of Hebrews, I, I don't have a hidden agenda. I want you to know exactly what my goal in studying Hebrews is. My goal is that every person in this room would have their eyes and their hearts absolutely fixed on Christ. That's my vision for this congregation. And it's the vision for this book, Hebrews. I've told you before, I I think Hebrews is a letter or maybe even a sermon written from a pastor to his congregation. And he's writing it to them because some of them are losing their focus on Christ and they're being distracted by all sorts of other things and he sees them starting to drift away. Now, is that danger a danger that has passed its expiration date and you and I don't have that same danger of losing our focus on Christ and drifting away? Now, this book is just as applicable today as it was when it was written. It's a call to fix our eyes on Jesus. So listen now, to God's Word. Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, 
who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God endures forever. On June 23rd, 2013, a 34-year-old tightrope walker named Nick Walenda became the first person to walk a tightrope over the 1,400-foot stretch of the Grand Canyon near Little River Gorge. The feat took 22 minutes and 54 seconds as Walenda walked 1,500 feet above the ground with no safety net. He did so over a two-inch thick wire and amidst winds up to 48 miles an hour. Now, Walenda didn't just wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to do a tightrope across the Grand Canyon. He was from a family known as the Flying Walenda family, perhaps uh, the most famous tightrope walkers in the world. But as I read the story, what I found really fascinating was how Nick's family trained him to be a tightrope walker. When he was a young child, he would walk a tightrope and his family would throw things, anything they could, not at him, but around him. They weren't trying to hit him and knock him off. They were trying to distract him so that he would lose his focus, that he would take his eyes off of the destination. And a tightrope walker will tell you that when you lose your focus and you take your eyes off of the destination, you will fall. In the Christian life, similar. When we look around, when we look down, when we get distracted by our earthly circumstances and take our eyes off of Christ, we begin to fall. We will fall. But when our eyes are fixed on Jesus and upon our heavenly destination, then those distractions and the discouragements of this world become far less distracting and far less discouraging. You know, just think of Peter. That's a great picture of Peter, isn't it? In Matthew 14, Peter and the disciples are out in a boat fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They see Jesus walking to them on water, and Peter is so excited he jumps out of the boat, and he's walking on water. This really happened, by the way. It's not a myth. It's true because it's in Scripture. Peter jumps out of the boat, and he's walking towards Jesus, and as long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, all was well. But then suddenly Peter realized, what am I doing? And he realizes there's waves and there's wind, and he starts to sink. He takes his eyes off of Christ. That's what's going on here in Hebrews. This is a congregation of people, Jewish converts to Christianity, who have left so much to follow Christ. And at first, it probably felt like nothing. They were pleased to do it, but 
distractions came into their life. And they begin thinking about all that they've given up. They've given up the temple. They've given up the high priest. They've given up the sacrifices. They, they are now viewed as a cult. They're marginalized. They've given up so much, and now they're discouraged. And some of them have lost their focus on Christ, and they're thinking about leaving the faith altogether. And as this pastor, undoubtedly through tears, looks at his beloved flock, it's clear that they're struggling because their eyes are on so many other things. And he speaks to them with incredible tenderness. And what he's going to do is he's going to give them two encouragements and then a warning. The first encouragement is consider Jesus. Consider who Jesus is. And he's going to show them in this passage just a glimpse of the glory of Christ. And then second, he's going to say to them, consider who you are because of Jesus. And he's going to remind them of the sacred privileges that are only ours in Jesus Christ. And, and then he's going to go on and he's going to say, consider this warning. Hold fast. He's going to tell them, keep on keeping on by keeping your eyes on Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at. Consider who Jesus is. Consider who you are. And then consider this warning. Hold fast. First, consider who Jesus is. You know, this is what he's been saying from the beginning of chapter 1. Just think about who Jesus is. And in chapter 1, he says Jesus is better than the prophets. And in chapter 2, he says Jesus is better than the angels. And he's going to do that again and again. He's going to compare Jesus again and again and again to all these different things to show that Jesus is better. In fact, if somebody asks you what's the theme of Hebrews, you can say it's Jesus is better. Better than what? Better than anything out there. In this case, the author is going to compare Jesus to Moses. And in the Jewish mind, there are not many people higher than Moses, more elevated than Moses. His experiences with God and his usefulness to God were really unparalleled in a lot of ways. Just think about Moses' spiritual resume. God spoke with him, as we read, in that flame of fire and commissioned him to royal service. On Mount Sinai, God revealed his law, his moral will to Moses. In, in Exodus 33, God spoke face-to-face with Moses. And, and under Lee's, uh, Moses' leadership, the tabernacle was built. The first five books of the Bible were written. Moses was unparalleled in a lot of ways, and yet when we compare him with Jesus Christ, we find there is no comparison. That Jesus is exponentially greater. But there's a little more to it as to why the author chose to compare Jesus with Moses here. The name Moses is synonymous with the old covenant system, the law. And as some of these people are thinking about going back, leaving Judaism, going back to the old covenant, Jesus is saying, okay, let's compare the mediators of those covenants. <coughs> let's compare Moses and his covenant with Jesus and his covenant. And he wants to tell them Jesus is superior in every way, and he outlines two ways here. First, he he shows them Jesus is superior in glory. Verse 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. 
as, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. You know, verse 6 is going to make clear when it's talking about a house, I don't think it's talking about a literal house. I don't think it's talking about the tabernacle. I, I think it's talking about the spiritual house of God, the family of God. And it's saying Moses was a member of the house of God, but Jesus is the builder, and the builder is worthy of more honor than the house itself. Jesus is one of the, uh, Moses was one of those living stones that Peter talks about. But Jesus is the builder. And then the other analogy he uses there, Moses is a servant in the house, but Jesus is the son who is over the house. And you just think about Moses at one point, his face shone with glory, but whose glory was it? It was really the glory of Christ. So so Jesus is much more glorious than Moses. Why would you go to a less glorious covenant mediator? like Moses. And then he says Jesus is also superior in faithfulness. You know, Moses was certainly faithful to what God called him to do, but Christ had a greater calling that required greater faithfulness. In fact, you remember Moses was faithful, but he wasn't always faithful. When he was called, God, I I stutter. I I can't do this job. He grew angry and struck the rock, so he wasn't able to enter into the promised land. You know, Moses is one of those reminders that the best of men are men at best. But Christ's ministry was marked by perfect faithfulness at every turn. Jesus never swerved. Jesus never turned back from the calling that God had given. He never relinquished the work that God had given. John 17, 4, Jesus said that I have accomplished the work you gave me to do. Luke 2, Jesus is always engaged in his father's business. Faithfulness was a mark of Moses, but it's a supreme characteristic of the Lord Jesus, meaning that we can rely fully on the faithfulness of every word that he spoke and every work that he did. In fact, he is faithful even when we are faithless. This matters because, as the text tells us, Christ's calling was more important than Moses' calling. You know, Moses served in God's house, but Jesus was the son over God's house. He came to build God's house. How did he build God's house? By living a perfect life, dying an undeserved death, and then giving credit for that perfect life, imputing it to all of God's elect. We are that house. That's one of the things, we're not going to dwell on it, but I want you to understand this point that it's making. God doesn't have two houses, one Israel, two the New Testament church. It's one house according to this text. Moses is a member of that house, and if you're a Christian, you're a member of that house. But Jesus is the builder of that house. We see that here. Look at verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. What was Moses faithful in? Pointing to Jesus. That was his job. His job was simply to point to what Christ was going to come to do. And so that's why Jesus in John 5.46 tells the Jews, If you had believed Moses, you would believe me. 
Moses pointed to what I came to do. Moses, as the author of the first five books of the Bible, was the starting point of Revelation. But Jesus is the high point of Revelation, and all of Scripture points to him. He is infinitely greater at every turn than Moses was. Why does that matter? Because as this pastor looks at his people and he knows they're struggling and he knows they're discouraged and he knows they're thinking about walking away from the faith, his counsel is consider Jesus. The NIV says, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Glue your eyes to Jesus. It's, it's a, a Greek word that's a little bit hard to, to translate. Katanoieo. It's, it's, it's put your mind upon it's an intense, intentional action of setting your mind upon Jesus at all times. That's what it means to consider Jesus. It's not just, hey, try Jesus out. You might like him. It's set the eyes of your heart upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's what Peter needed in order not to sink to fix his eyes upon Jesus. And this dear pastor is saying to his flock that he loves so much, if you will seek, if you will labor to make Jesus your chief delight and the treasure of your heart, if you'll labor to keep him always on your mind and your mind always on him, if you will behold him by faith and seek to be preoccupied with him, then the troubles of this world won't sink you. Then you'll have the buoyancy, not only to survive the storms of this world, but actually to experience great joy in the midst of it. You cannot, you cannot do the words of James 1, 2 through 3. Consider it pure joy when facing trials of all kinds. You cannot do that by fixing your eyes upon your trials or your circumstances. You can only do that by fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ. And that's, that's what he's saying to his flock, and he knows it doesn't just happen. You don't drift into fixing your eyes on Jesus. It only happens when we are intentional in all things to set the eyes of our heart upon him, to make him the subject of our thoughts to look to him for the fulfillment of our souls. I think the main reason you and I can have so many ups and downs, and, and at times we can be so discouraged, so bent out of shape, so critical, so grumbling like the Israelites were in the wilderness, is because we do not consider Jesus nearly enough. I don't want you to misunderstand. He's not saying, if you'll just follow Jesus, then all your troubles will go away. That's a lie. And so when you're watching television and a televangelist with a big smile comes on and says, just follow Jesus and your life will get much easier and you'll be happy, wealthy, wealthy, uh, healthy, wealthy, and wise, turn that off because he's not speaking scripture. I think the Apostle Paul would go, oh, really? My life didn't get hard till I followed Jesus. 
He's not saying here, if you follow Christ, your life gets easy. Here's what he's saying. If you fix your heart upon what you've left behind to follow Christ, or you fix your life upon the difficulties of this world, or you fix your life upon what you don't have, if that's where your attention is, you're going to be a miserable person. And you'll always be seeking something else. And you'll always grumble and complain. And you're thinking of people that are just like that. And you may be the people that are just like that. And sometimes we all are. We, we get distracted with worldly things. And it just frustrates us. And it discourages us. But if the chief object of our attention and our affections can be the goodness the power, the wisdom, the love, the justice, the kindness, the awesomeness of Christ. It doesn't change our perspective, our, our circumstances, but it changes our perspective so that we can keep our eyes on the prize, which is not a better life in this world, but our heavenly calling in Jesus Christ. That is the prize. Um. That's where most of our problems come from. I don't mean to be overly simplistic. When I was in college, uh, there was an infirmary, and whether you went to the infirmary with a broken toe or bronchitis, you were getting the one medication they had. It it was the fix-all. I don't mean to be like that. But I do mean to say the same thing that this author is saying. Yes, I know you've left so much behind, and I know that persecution lies before you. And there's only one answer to that, and that is fix your eyes upon Jesus Christ. The main reason that our lives can be so full of depression and despair and criticism and complaints is because we simply do not consider Jesus enough. And we don't meditate upon the glory and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ like we should. And so our lives are bounced up and down with the waves of our circumstances. But when, when we meditate, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, He is the anchor of our souls, as Hebrews 6 is going to call Him. And so this author says, consider who Jesus is. That's the first encouragement. Consider who He is. Fix your eyes and your heart on who Jesus is. And then second, he says, once that is the center, then I want you to consider a second thing. Consider who you are because you belong to Jesus. Here, he's going to tell them, I want you to think about the privileges that as believers, you are the only people in the world that get to enjoy these privileges. And he does it, does it very subtly here. In, in verse 1, he tells them about their new identity. He, he tells them that they are holy. He says, therefore, holy brothers. Hang on. You're writing to people who are discouraged, and some of them are wandering, and some of them are going to leave the faith. How can you call them holy? Don't you realize that this room that you're writing to and this room that I'm speaking to, it's full of sinners? Well, he knows exactly who he's talking to, but he's speaking of the incredible transformation that happens when you come to know Christ. You know, if, if, if you pursue, seek knowing Moses, you'll come under the law. It can't transform you. It, it doesn't have the power But when you come to know Jesus, He transforms you. And what He does is He takes away our sin and He pronounces us 
holy. His holiness is credited to us. You know, Satan, and this is a big deal in the modern church today, Satan wants us to identify ourselves according to our sin and our past. So we have these labels like an alcoholic Christian or a drug-addicted Christian or a gay Christian. And, and the idea is that we can belong to Christ but still identify with our sin. That is of, de- of the devil. If you have repented and are trusting in Christ, that may be who you once were, but it is not who you are. You are holy in Christ. And then he's reminded of them of their new identity, and then he reminds them of their new family by calling them brothers. You know, brothers speaks of a mutual belonging to one another. It's a key implication of the gospel that if we are one with Christ, as we saw in chapter 2, he's our elder brother. If he's my brother, then God is my father. And if he's your brother, then God is your father. What does that mean for us as a church? It means that we are brothers and we are sisters. We belong to one another. Everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to everyone who belongs to Jesus. And so we are brothers. It is the gospel privilege of all who have been saved by grace through faith, redeemed by the blood of Christ that we belong to his family. That's why in Ephesians 2.19, Paul calls us the household of God. By the way, Moses is in that house. He's part of our church. Who goes to your church? Moses does. The apostle Paul does. King David's there. This pastor's saying to his beloved flock, Moses could not make you a child of God. Obedience to the law could not make you a child of God. The most Moses with the law could do is make you servants, but Christ makes you sons. So you have a new identity. You have a new family. And just for a second, I want you to think about that. Do you live your life with the conscious awareness that the God of the universe is your heavenly Father? We, uh, how, how would that transform our lives? If we began to understand and live with the reality that everything com- that comes into my life has come to me through the hand of a loving, perfect, heavenly Father. It, it begins to take away our complaining and our disgruntledness, doesn't it? It makes us a content people because we trust our Father that He is good. What privileges are ours who are God's family? So remember your identity, remember your new family, but third, remember your destination. Just as that tightrope walker focused all his attention on his destination, if we can keep our eyes upon that eternal rest that we're going to talk about in the next couple of chapters, where we will spend eternity, then the few years here become what James described as a mist and a vapor. They're here today and gone tomorrow. That heavenly destination is a guarantee for all who trust in Christ. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? Then your eternity will be spent in heaven. That is your destination. 
You know, that was a key for, we're going to get to Hebrews 11 eh, somewhere in the next year. I don't know when. But Hebrews 11 is sometimes called the hall of faith. It, it's all the heroes, quote, of the faith. They were all flawed people. But they had one thing in common, and, and Hebrews tells us the thing they had in common was this world wasn't worthy of them. They were living for another world. They were citizens of another world. And so if we can understand our new destination, these earthly trials become a lot less important, don't they? Puritan John Trapp said, he who rides to be crowned doesn't think much of a rainy day. You and I are riding to be crowned as sons and daughters of the king. The storms ought not be a hindrance along the way. So he encourages them, identity, family, destination. He gives them the encouragements, and then in his deep love for these storm-tossed saints, he gives them a gentle but very firm warning. He looks at his beloved flock. He sees some of whom who are drifting, and maybe they, they haven't gathered in worship in a while, and maybe they, 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 they no longer visit with him, and so on. They're loosening their grips on Christ, and he says in verse 6, we are his house. That's that family word. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That word hold fast, it's a nautical term. It's the same word used back in Acts 27 when the Apostle Paul and other sailors were caught in this terrible storm and they, as they pass by Crete, and, and the ships being beaten and, and battered, they catch sight of a bay with a beach, and they direct all of their attention to getting to that beach. And they knew that if they didn't, they'd be swept away. And he says here, likewise, you hold fast your confidence and your hope in Christ. me tell you what he's not saying because it's easy and there's going to be a lot of this in Hebrews it's easy to read this as if he's saying you can lose your salvation I've said it before I've said it again I'll say it again if you can lose your salvation I'll have lost it a hundred times just today he's not saying that if salvation comes to us by grace how could we then lose it if we didn't do anything to earn it how could we then lose it? The mountain of your sins would have to pile higher than the reach of the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, no one can pluck us out of his Father's hand. To lose your salvation, you would have to be stronger than God the Father to loosen his grip upon you. That's why our Lord says in Matthew twenty four thirteen. Those who endure to the end will be saved. How does that fit? How do salvation by grace, how does it fit with this warning to hold fast? Because those who endure to the end prove that the grace of God has worked in their life. They have been kept, they've been held by the power of God. One of the ways you know that you truly belong to Christ is that you hold fast with watchfulness, with obedience, with prayerfulness. I am not saying perfection by any stretch, but that you hold fast to Christ. So the true believer will show, will, will have evidence through their life 
by continuing, by enduring in the faith. It's not that you'll never experience struggles or times of doubt or even times of great sin, possibly. But in the midst of that, you'll ultimately hold fast because it is the grace of God that is holding you. He's not saying you can lose your salvation, but here's what he's doing. He's looking at his flock, and he sees some of them who are showing signs that they may not truly belong to God's family. They may have professed faith, but they show no evidence that they possess true, saving, biblical faith. And so through this pastor, the Spirit is warning these false believers that if you depart from Christ, your souls will be lost. Will they lose their salvation? No, because you can't lose something you never had. There are many who make outward professions of faith who have never come to trust in Jesus. And many of those will leave the faith. That's what the Bible calls apostasy. Apostasy is what happens when someone once professed to be a believer. They may have even appeared to be a believer, but then they walk away from the faith in Jesus Christ and from the family of God. How do we understand that? What, what happens when that happens? Because you've seen it, and I've seen it, and we're both going to see it much more over the span of our lives. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2. So turn from Hebrews, start turning right. Go past James, go past Peter's epistles. 1 John chapter 2. One of the issues is this exact same thing, that people were once in the church, but they've left the church. And here's what he says, verse 19. They went out from us, who's us? the church, because they were not of us. They didn't know Jesus Christ. They didn't enjoy the privileges of a new family and a new identity and a new destination. They appeared to outwardly, but inwardly it was not theirs. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, there will be many who profess to be believers, but will not endure to the end. Does that hit home with you? Um, we're in a strange new world. 20 years ago, not that long, 20 years ago, two in every four Americans were in church on a Sunday. Two decades passed by, now it's one in every four. So one in every four has presumably become apostate in the last 20 years. You know that one in every four. You have people in your life that once outwardly appeared to be believers who have left the church. They've left the faith. You know, even in our denomination, uh, biblically, I think a biblically solid denomination, attendance today is only 60 to 80% of what it was before COVID. Well, some people certainly have, have um, perhaps are scared to go back out in public. But I think much, much more than that is that people have seen this as an opportunity to quit making the sacrifice of following the Lord Jesus. They have seen it as an opportunity to turn away. How does that happen? 
How does it happen when someone who by all appearances once was a believer, how do they become apostate? They took their eyes off of Jesus. They never really knew him. They never really knew his glory. They never really trusted in him. And so it was an outward profession. It was an outward glance at him, but their hearts were never fixed upon him. And so they take their eyes off. And they become so distracted with other things that the main thing is no longer the main thing. Ernest Hemingway, in the book, The Sun Also Rises, he, he has a dialogue between two characters. One of them has gone bankrupt. And the other one says, how did you go bankrupt? And the one that went bankrupt said two ways, gradually and then all at once. In other words, it happened slowly and I didn't notice small steps, small bad decisions, and then I wake up one day and it's all gone. Isn't that apostasy? Isn't that what happens? Very rarely do people wake up and say, you know what? I'm done following Christ. Here's what it normally looks like. Distraction. We've just got so many other priorities. We've got kids' sporting events. We've got travel. We've got family obligations. And so church that once was a priority becomes a negotiable. Does that hit home with you at all? Because if it hits home with you and you're here today, there's still opportunity to repent of that. But then you rationalize it. When things aren't so busy, we'll make church a priority. We've been saying for 18 years that soon things will slow down. They only speed up. Things aren't going to slow down unless we slow them down. And that leads to inconsistency in worship and time in the Word. The means of grace no longer are a priority to you. And it all happens so gradually, and then suddenly you find yourself a stranger to the Lord Jesus. And I've seen it play out a hundred times, and so have you. And this pastor's warning them, Hold fast, because God's persevering grace is a mark that you belong to Him. And so fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't we need this word badly today? Because you and I have so many distractions, don't we? I think for most of us, the thing that hurts our walk with Christ is not scandalous sin, but constant distraction that we're pulled in a million different directions. We wake up, we, we go to work, we work out, we go see friends, whatever it is. 16 hours later, we go to bed, realize we have not prayed, we have not spent time with the Lord at all. It happens. It happens gradually and then suddenly. And, and so to us and to the Hebrews, God says, consider Jesus. Make Jesus the chief focus and ambition of your life. You know, the world's distractions are constant, but what do they profit you if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? You have everything to gain by holding on to Christ and everything to lose by drifting away. What Hebrews is saying here is intensely personal to you and me. Your commitment to Christ is not just a matter of word but life. So consider Jesus, the one who alone is worthy to bear the thoughts, the affections, the weight of our lives. How do we apply this text? 
couple things. First, I want you to see, and you're going to see this all throughout Hebrews, this is a call not just to persevere in the faith, but to persevere in the family of God. Verse 6, we are his house. We are his house. If indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope, you simply don't see solo Christians in the New Testament. They're linked to the church. It is assumed. The call to follow Christ in Scripture is a call to Christ's people, and we're going to see that. I just want you to think of some of the ways we're going to see that in Hebrews. We've already been called to recognize ourselves as part of the Son's great house that He's building, and Peter tells us that He's building it with stones, and we are those stones. We are living stones. Next week, we'll see that we're to exhort one another. How can you exhort one another if you don't spend time with the church? In a few weeks, he tells us to act as members of the people of God. In chapter 6, he'll tell us to serve the saints. In chapter 10, he'll tell us to consider how we may stir one another up to love and good works as we meet together and encourage one another. Can you do that if you have cut yourself off from the fellowship of the church? This text and this entire book will not permit a low view of the church. We are called to be committed participants of a local body and faithfully attend the means of grace in public worship. And so particularly to those of you that you get to church when you can get to it, and when nothing else comes up, this is a call to repentance. You are called not just to persevere in Christ, but to persevere in the church. God's people are to see ourselves as part of the son's house that he is building. Just think about when a shepherd calls the sheep to himself, the sheep come running and they are gathered together. When God calls us to worship, he is calling you to be gathered together. It's a commitment to God's house, God's family. Second, it's a call to self-examination. What's stealing your affections and your attention that ultimately only belongs to Christ? None of us would say, you know, Jesus really isn't important as watching Netflix for the next six hours, but don't we say it? None of us would say, Jesus, Jesus really isn't important, as important as my son's baseball practice or my son's football practice or my daughter's cheerleading practice or whatever else we can find to fill up our schedule. None of us would say that, but don't we say it all the time? None of us would say prayer isn't important, but don't we say it all the time because we're willing to scroll through hours of social media rather than spend five minutes in fellowship with our Heavenly Father? you know, I'd love to serve the church, but I'm just so busy. What are you doing this afternoon? Well, fill in the blank. You got a million different things that can go there. Hobbies, relationships, whatever it is. In fact, it is even possible that you can spend so much time in service to Jesus that you fail to spend much time with Jesus. You know how I know that? because I get paid to do service to Jesus. And I can wake up 
and you can wake up and go through our whole day serving Jesus and never once spending time with him. That's a distraction. What's heartbreaking for us when we consider these distractions, and I hope you will go home and take serious inventory of your life so that you can look at the distractions and say, how can we put those things on the back burner so that our relationship with Jesus Christ can be our chief priority? What's heartbreaking is that when we fill our lives with things that are not Jesus, that do not satisfy and nourish, we're choosing second best. That's what the Hebrews were doing, choosing Moses over Jesus. It just doesn't make sense. But when you and I waste all our time with all sorts of other stuff rather than fellowship with Christ and worship with his people, we're making the exact same choice. And so as you work on your inventory of what steals your attention and affection, ask this question. Are these things really more worthy of my attention and my affection than Jesus is? Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we, uh, we love Christ. He is utterly worthy of every moment of our attention. We know that and we profess it with our lips, but we also confess that so often, so often we find other things to be so much more worthy than him, in our practice at least. Help us, O oh God, to repent of, of looking to and thinking that other things can can be more satisfying than Christ. Help us to, to be humble about that, to not uh, convince ourselves of something that's not true about us. But Father, I, my prayer is that every person in this room, man, woman, and child, would make Jesus our chief thought, our, our highest thought, our chief ambition, and our greatest delight day after day, starting today, 